This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Cutting food waste could save you $1,300 a year and it's become easier than ever. We'll tell you how. And after being treated for advanced cancer, an emergency room doctor and author returns to work with a new perspective. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. New Omicron-fighting COVID booster shots have delivered an 81% reduction in COVID hospitalization to Israelis 65 and older. And new research on the updated Pfizer shots released in the summer found that they have reduced the risk of death in this demographic by 86%. The research, not yet peer-reviewed, is the world's first large-scale assessment of the bivalent shots that have been enhanced against variants. Signed, sealed, delivered is starting to take on new meaning. With the near elimination of cursive writing, can the handwriting signature be far behind? The pandemic accelerated us all to adopt technology, including the electronic signature, and almost overnight, some companies relied on e-signatures. But even as life returns to some sense of normal, some observers say the written signature is a living fossil and are calling for it to end. Electronic signatures are mostly regulated at the provincial level. In Ontario, the Electronic Commerce Act has been in place since 2000. And at the federal level, e-signatures are addressed in the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act. Saying that fine dining at the highest level has hit a breaking point and is unsustainable, famed Danish restaurant Noma, which has claimed the title of world's top restaurant several times, is reinventing itself. The eatery has announced that it will shut down by the end of 2024 to become a pioneering test kitchen dedicated to the work of food innovation and the development of new flavors. Its new name will be Noma 3.0. The chef and owner says his team will travel to search for new ways to share their work and hinted about a Noma pop-up. That's Bessie Hendricks singing at her 100th birthday back in 2007. She has died at the age of 115 after becoming the oldest living person in the United States one year ago. The Iowa teacher began her career at a one-room schoolhouse before she married and started a family. Bessie said the secret to a long life is hard work, and she was also a lifelong Iowa Hawkeye fan. The title of the oldest living American now belongs to 114-year-old Edie Cicciarelli of California. She turns 115 February 5th. 
I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's not unusual this time of year for people to make healthy resolutions around food. But this year, there's a new spin that's also good for the environment, cutting food waste, which, by the way, averages 140 kilos per year per household. I talked with leading health and wellness expert Rose Reisman about practical ways to rescue much of what usually ends up in your bin. What are some of the things that people can do? You know, we hear a lot about menu planning, which I guess right. a lot of people find a pain. Uh, so let's let's talk about that. How can we change? I mean, people at least have been cooking more because of the pandemic. Right. So, You know, two things, menu planning for sure. So if you're going to buy a rotisserie chicken, you just don't have a menu plan that has chicken once in four days. You, you have it in tortilla and a fried rice. So you try to look at your menu more carefully. It does take more time and people don't always have time, but that's one good way of doing it. Also buying ready-made um, individual portions or portions for two in supermarkets today is is a big, big deal. You can buy just enough for two people so you don't have waste. So if you know you have to buy broccoli and all these vegetables to make a dish and you know you're going to throw them out at the end of the week, think think a little differently. Just, you know, in terms of buying fresh or frozen, which today fresh is so expensive, people are going to frozen meals. And now they're turning to these apps that allow them to buy food at almost a 50% discount because they're just ready to go to their expiry date or best of um, their best of sale date. That's right. Let's get into that. I think that even when it comes to buying something like uh, chicken or whatever, we're conditioned to think that really the freshest is the best. Right. But but it, it, these things are good for a while. Absolutely. And, you know, Libby, so many people, the expiry date and, you know, the best before dates are really People people stick to them too rigidly. So I know my kids come in my home and they see the container that says today it's expired. They, they without my knowledge, will throw it out. Do you know that those, those products can stay another three, four days, even longer if they're not opened? So once the product's opened, I get it. You know, you, you do the smell taste, the t- you do the smell, you taste it, you look at it to see if there's any mold. But if milk is, say, the expiry date, you still have a good few days. And people who know that, open it up three, four days later, and it's perfectly fine. So one is stopping as, as, you know, rigid around those dates. That's number one. What about meal planning? I mean, I think people might make it a little more complicated than it actually is. Absolutely. That's why I say go out and buy a rotisserie chicken. And before you buy it, just say, okay, what can I do with this that would satisfy my family? So maybe um, uh, chicken fried rice or uh, chicken fried cauliflower if you're watching your carbs. And then that chicken the next day could be put into a salad. I'll make a chicken soup and freeze it. So I'm using that entire chicken without any waste. So you have to start thinking like that. And some people say, oh, Rose, that's so much work. But if you really want to help the environment, save some money, these are the kind of things we have to make an effort to do it. So menu planning can be that that simple. I want to get to events because and catering. As I mentioned, I was recently at a wedding. There was way too much food. Right. Uh, delicious food. And I felt really badly that by the time we were seated and my dinner arrived, I couldn't touch it. Right. Yeah. The appetizers are a full meal. They were kind of never-ending and right. very delicious. So what happens to food from events that is not used? 
as a caterer, I know that, you know, years and years ago, perhaps we could have donated to churches, but now just because of food safety, you can't. So it's got to be freshly made, and you got to coordinate with the charity and make, you know, they have to make sure that you're producing it fresh, that it's not been left over. So normally that extra food either goes to staff that want to take it home um, or in the garbage. And I can tell you from catering hundreds and hundreds of events, uh, there's always so much. And when people want a million appetizers, we try to encourage them to lessen it because they won't eat the meal. And sure enough, half the meal of a wedding will be finished, half the dinner. The appetizers will be gobbled up, and then half the dinner is thrown out. And it's it's terrible to watch. Now, sometimes people at the wedding, you know, the, the ones who are hosting will say, pack me something up, but it's not nearly enough if you're having 150 or 200 people. I didn't know that. So th- these days you cannot, if you if you finish a, at a party or something, right. you can't send it no, over. No, you can't send it down. No, no, that, that, you know, maybe some places will accept it, but you're not supposed to do that because the food has been left out. You're not sure of safe temperatures anymore and people will get sick. So I know years ago, I think when I started catering, you were able to donate it to, you know, a church or a homeless shelter, but not now. No. So unless you make it specially for them and say, we're going to donate this, which we've done before, then that's a different story. What was the impact of the pandemic? Because people wanted to shop less often for obvious reasons. Yeah, they did. I mean, people started ordering their groceries online. Um, They were still afraid. I mean, I still go into my supermarket and see lots of people wearing masks, still not happy about being there. Um, Wait a minute. I I wear a mask in the grocery store. doesn't mean I'm not happy. That's right. There you go. So you see a lot of people have stopped wearing it, and some people are still wearing them. I I think the pandemic made people concerned about going out a lot. So they either had uh, groceries dropped off or they ordered and picked it up. They didn't want to step into the store. And I think now a lot of that has still continued. I think people are ordering in their groceries or picking up and, and getting used to what is picked. But that's why, you know, some of these apps where you can get the food for less can be a fabulous, fabulous way to go for people to save money. I've looked at many of these apps and some of the savings are incredible. I mean, they had something at Fine Food Store where you could get a steak, a soup, a chicken salad. This was at Pusateri's, very expensive store, for $10, Libby. Yeah, these are these are great. Rose Reisman, bon appetit. Thank you so much, Libby. Be well. That was cookbook author and caterer Rose Reisman. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a doctor returns to the emergency ward after a stage four cancer diagnosis. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members-only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca. Emergency room doctor, author, and survivor of advanced stage four cancer. Dr. James Muscalic has also recently been named executive editor of the Canadian Medical Association Journal. I caught up with him now that he's returned to work with a new perspective on practicing medicine. How are you? Today I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing well today. Thanks for asking. Are you sick of people asking you how you are? <laughs> it's such a big question, and I'm not sure if they want to know the actual answer because, uh, you know, it changes from day to day, but uh, I, I appreciate it nonetheless. You were diagnosed with a stage four cancer, 
And that changed a lot of things in your life, including the trajectory of your work and obviously how you look at things. Yeah, I pivoted to patient real fast on a dime. You know, I was just during COVID, almost the first phase, I felt a lymph node in my neck and I knew it didn't feel right. And I had this terrible sense of foreboding, you know, as this moved on, that not just was the world about to enter kind of a very difficult time, that it was there for me too. So, yeah, I. I really understood more than ever before what it's like to be a patient. And in that way, you know, made me a better doctor as those things tend to do. They were able to remove most of the cancer and there's still some of it somewhere in my body. I don't know exactly where the last I've heard from a, a, a cancer surgeon was, he told me, well, you'll probably die of something else. So I don't know if that's supposed meant to come from me, but it kind of did. But, you know, I, I also live with this uh, kind of a deeper awareness, you know, and I can just describe it as, as if knowing life, I've always known it only happens in one direction, but just knowing it's so fragile, your hold on the future is so tender. But once you get that, it's just like someone turns up the color a little bit on the on the dial or something and everything becomes a bit more precious your relationship your work your interactions with patients so that's what i'm living with and what did it lead you to in terms of what you consider most important in your work you know i guess it's just really it's you know in terms of where my career is moving towards it's kind of just taking a step back and thinking about how thin that line is between patient and doctor and wondering how i'm supposed to deliver healthcare increasingly from a system that is almost less and less human all the time more and more about efficiency more and more about computers less and less time with patients you'll you'll imagine the distance we've come where a doctor would actually come into your home and deliver your baby, and then perhaps help your parent who was sick at the end of their life, and how different it is now everyone's fragmented into a million different places and pieces, and people don't even know who their doctor actually is. So how can I work from within that system and give patients what they need? So what that's led me to is I'm kind of working with doctors in a certain way. I mean, I'm working with emergency departments in particular, and the doctors within them to see how we can come up to making it more human from the inside. Meaning, how can I work in a place where I'm asked to see sometimes very difficult, and I would even go so far as to say sometimes terrible things, and then have no place where I'm given permission to even find a quiet moment to myself if I want to cry or mourn or talk to a friend or debrief with a colleague? How am I supposed to continue to show up again and again so I think that's what's led to, you know, as my trajectory of my career. And as a clinician who still works with patients on a day-to-day, it's really just slowed me down. It's just helped me see them in a way as just we're both in this kind of same journey that led us to this point in time. So I just enjoy that moment more than I ever did. And maybe moments in general. But certainly my moment interacting with people in the busy place that is in ER. How big a factor is burnout? And have the things you just talked about, have they increased burnout? Now I'm doing medicine in the hallway. And now I'm doing it where I can't even ask people privately, say something like, is someone hurting you? 
Is there anything else you want to tell me? And I'm kind of shortchanging that exchange. So uh, we're feeling less and less of that, I don't know, that uh, solidarity with the mission, which is to alleviate pain and suffering and sickness in people, regardless of who they are, or how much money they have, or whatever. We're feeling less and less of that because we're having a harder time even actually doing it. So I think people are starting to kind of st- check out, check out a bit emotionally, sometimes check out actually, leave the profession early, go to a different country, try to find something else to do that's a little bit easier. So I think that it's kind of playing into, you know, the larger kind of healthcare crisis that you're hearing talked about. So I think the change is those things often kind of do starts with ourselves, looking at ourselves. What do we need so we're able to actually show up for our patients? We're all finding out that one of the major ways to take pressure off the health system is virtual medicine and more non-human contact and you know, some things that are really good are also really bad. Like um, there's now a patient portal and you can find out your test results before your doctor tells you. And you can find out some really bad things from a bot at midnight. I think there's a bit of a balance there. I kind of feel like we're missing an opportunity to kind of steward patients. And this is an example where I say, like, in the name of increased efficiency, we're kind of half delivering on a promise. Yeah, sure, patients deserve the, the most timely access to care that we can possibly make, but that doesn't mean like pinging them with a CT result that may have is tough to contextualize and then leaving them alone with Google to come up with the worst case scenario. So I think that, you know, great crisis creates bright, great opportunities. I think that when there's great kind of pain or change afoot, there's a bit of a, there's an, un, it comes from an uncomfortable place. So I hope this next kind of phase of medicine is, gives us this, you know, really what we're looking for, which is a more compassionate, kind place to get, um, you know, the healthcare that we need in really just kind of, you know, measured, not just the physical body, but just kind of the emotional content of what we're going through. But I think something has to change. Dr. James Muscalic, thanks so much for that. Thanks for talking to me. That was Dr. James Muscalic. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.